Maddie told Hattie about a thing she saw. Two big horns and a woolly jaw. Woolly bully. Woolly bully for you, stout yeoman. This month, this this week, this 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 season, we are being sponsored by bunnyslippers.com and their Highland Cow Wooly Bully Slippers. It doesn't say Wooly Bully on the website. It's just what I'm saying because I've had that song stuck in my head since I got these comfortable, comfortable wool slippers that I've been strolling around the studio with. Go to bunnyslippers.com. Check them out yourself. Wooly Bully. That's not their name. Highland Cow Slippers. Highland Cow Slippers. Ooh, they're so soft and they're so fuzzy. And probably the next convention that I'll be at, I'll throw a pair out in the audience for everyone. Wooly Bully Slippers from bunnyslippers.com. And you know what? I can't talk about bunnyslippers.com without talking about my super cool, greasy Tony's t-shirt. It's a three-quarter length sleeve shirt. I'm just talking about it because I love this shirt. They don't expect me to talk about it. I just love... Dressing like Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. It's, uh, I don't know. He's my, he's my Patronus, I guess one would say. All right. You know what we're talking about this week? We're not talking about anything this week. We're listening, people. We're listening. We're listening to Jules Verne. It's his, it's his birth month this month. Uh, and we're going to be covering, we're going to be talking about the Antarctic mystery. Wahaha. Yes, the Antarctic mystery where the Antarctic is more broken than my various accents that I do throughout the intro to this show. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo, spooky dookie. And, uh, hey, just something that's out there. If you are someone who likes the show and wants to help out the show, why not go to pgttcm.com and go to the donate option. Help the show. Help the show grow. Help repair the equipment. Help me help other podcasters get off the ground as I'm doing with Dave from Dave's Corner of the Universe and Zach Ferguson from Articulate Warbling. If you like either of those, why not help out the show and help them out as well? And also, I'm going to be trying to come up with a larger show, a larger format, something that I wanted People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos to be to begin with. Well, here's some Jewel for Svern and enough of me talking. Let's go. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne, Chapter 19, Part 2, Land During the next twenty-four hours, the Halbrane took a south-southwesterly course. Nevertheless, her direction must have been frequently changed and her speed decreased in avoiding the ice. The navigation became very difficult so soon as the schooner headed towards the line of the bergs, which it had to cut obliquely. However, there were none of the packs which blocked up all access to the icebergs on the 67th parallel. The enormous heaps were melting away with majestic slowness. The ice blocks appeared quite new, to employ a perfectly accurate expression, and perhaps they had only been formed some days. However, with a height of 150 feet, their bulk must have been calculated by millions of tons. West was watching closely in order to avoid collisions and did not leave the deck even for an instant. Until now, Captain Langai had always been able to rely upon the indications of the compass. The magnetic pole, still hundreds of miles off, had no influence on the compass, its direction being east. The needle remained steady and might be trusted. So, in spite of my conviction, founded, however, on very serious arguments, there is no sign of land, and I was wondering whether it would not be better to steer more to the west, at the risk of removing the halbrane from that extreme point where the meridians of the globe cross each other. Thus the hours went by, and I was only allowed forty-eight. It was only too plain that lack of courage prevailed, and that everyone was inclined to be insubordinate. Another day and a half I could no longer contend with the general discontent. The schooner must ultimately retrace her course towards the north. The crew were working in silence, while West was giving sharp orders for manoeuvring through the channels, sometimes luffing in order to avoid a collision, now bearing away almost square before the wind. Nevertheless, in spite of a close watch, in spite of the skill of the sailors, in spite of the prompt execution of the manoeuvres, dangerous friction against the hull, 
which left long traces of the ridge of the iceberg, occurred. And, in truth, the bravest could not repress a feeling of terror when thinking that the planking might have given way, and the sea have invaded us. The base of these floating ice-mountains was very steep, so that it would have been impossible for us to land upon one. Moreover, we saw no seals, these usually very numerous, where the ice-fields abounded, nor even a flock of the screeching penguins, which, on other occasions, the halbrane sent diving by myriads as she passed through them. The birds themselves seemed rarer and wilder. Dread, from which none of us could escape, seemed to come upon us from these desolate and deserted regions. How could we still entertain a hope that the survivors of the Jane had found shelter, and obtained means of existence in those awful solitudes? And if the halbrane were also shipwrecked, would there remain any evidence of her fate? Since the previous day, from the moment our southern course had been abandoned, to cut the line of the icebergs, a change had taken place in the demeanour of the half-breed, nearly always crouched down at the foot of the foremast, looking afar into the boundless space. He only got up in order to lend a hand to some manoeuvre, and without any of his former vigilance or zeal. Not that he had ceased to believe that his comrade of the Jane was still living, that thought never even came into his mind. But he felt by instinct that the traces of poor Pym were not to be recovered by following this course. Sir, he would have said to me, this is not the way, no, this is not the way. And how could I have answered him? Towards seven o'clock in the evening, a rather thick mist arose. This would tend to make the navigation of the schooner difficult and dangerous. The day, with its emotions of anxiety and alternatives, had worn me out. So I returned to my cabin, where I threw myself on my bunk in my clothes. But sleep did not come to me, owing to my besetting thoughts. I willingly admit that the constant reading of Edgar Poe's works, and reading them in this place, in which his heroes delighted, had exercised an influence on me which I did not fully recognize. Tomorrow the forty-eight hours would be up, the last concession which the crew had made to my entreaties. "'Things are not going as you wish,' the boatswain said to me, just as I was leaving the deck. "'No, certainly not, since land was not to be seen behind the fleet of icebergs. If no sign of a coast appeared between these moving masses, Captain Len Guy would steer north tomorrow.' "'Ah, uh, were I only master of the schooner!' if I could have bought it even at the price of all my fortune, if these men had been my slaves to drive by the lash, the Halbrane should never have given up this voyage, even if it led her so far as the point above which flames the southern cross. My mind was quite upset, and teemed with a thousand thoughts, a thousand regrets, a thousand desires. I wanted to get up, but a heavy hand held me down in my bunk and I longed to leave this cabin, where I was struggling against nightmare in my half-sleep, to launch one of the boats of the Halbrane, to jump into it with Dirk Peters, who would not hesitate about following me, and so abandoned both of us to the current running south. And lo, I was doing this in a dream. It is tomorrow. Captain Len Guy has given orders to reverse our course, after a last glance at the horizon. One of the boats is in tow. I warn the half-breed, we creep along without being seen. We cut the painter. Whilst the schooner sails on ahead, we stay astern, and the current carries us off. Thus we should drift on the sea without hindrance. At length our boat stops. Land is there. I see a sort of sphinx surmounting the southern peak. The sea sphinx. I go to him. I question him. He discloses the secrets of these mysterious regions to me. And then the phenomenon whose reality Arthur Pym asserted, appear around the mystic monster. The certain flickering of vapours, striped with luminous rays, is rent asunder, and it is not a face of superhuman grandeur which arises before my astonished eyes. It is Arthur Pym, fierce guardian of the South Pole, flaunting the ensign of the United States in those high latitudes. Was this dream suddenly interrupted, or was it changed by a freak of my brain, I cannot tell, but I felt as though I had been, suddenly awakened. 
It seemed as though a change had taken place in the motion of the schooner, which was sliding along the surface of the quiet sea, with a slight list to starboard, and yet there was neither rolling nor pitching. Yes, I felt myself carried off, as though my bunk were the car of an air balloon. I was not mistaken, and I had fallen from dreamland into reality. Crash succeeded crash overhead. I could not account for them. Inside my cabin the partitions deviated from the vertical, in such a way as to make one believe that the halbrane had fallen over on her beam ends. Almost immediately I was thrown out of my bunk, and barely escaped splitting my skull against the corner of the table. However, I got up again, and, clinging to the edge of the door-frame, I propped myself against the door. At this instant the bulwarks began to crack, and the port side of the ship was torn open. Could there have been a collision between the schooner and one of those gigantic floating masses which West was unable to avoid in the mist? Suddenly loud shouts came from the after-deck, and then screams of terror in which the maddened voices of the crew joined. At length there came a final crash, and the halbrane remained motionless. I had to crawl along the floor to reach the door and gain the deck. Captain Len Guy, having already left his cabin, dragged himself on his knees, so great was the list to port, and caught on as best as he could. In the forepart of the ship, between the forecastle and the foremast, many heads appeared. Dirk Peters, Hardy, Martin Holt, and Endicott, the latter with his black face quite vacant, were clinging to the starboard shrouds. A man came creeping up to me, because the slope of the deck prevented him from holding himself upright. It was Hurlygurly, working himself along with his hands like a top man on a yard. Stretched out at full length, my feet propped up against the jamb of the door, I held out my hand to the bosun and helped him, not without difficulty, to hoist himself up near me. "'What is wrong?' I asked. "'A stranding, Mr. Jorling. "'We are ashore.' "'Ashore presupposes land,' replied the boatswain ironically, "'and so far as land goes, there was never any, "'except in that rascal Dirk Peter's imagination. "'But tell me what has happened. "'We came upon an iceberg in the middle of the fog, "'and were unable to keep clear of it. "'An iceberg, boatswain? "'Yes, an iceberg, which has chosen just now "'to turn head over heels. "'In turning, it struck the halbrane "'and carried it off, just as a battledore catches a shuttlecock.' And now, here we are, stranded at certainly one hundred feet above the level of the Antarctic Sea. Could one have imagined a more terrible conclusion to the adventurous voyage of the Halbrane? In the middle of these remote regions, our only means of transport had just been snatched from its natural element and carried off by the turn of an iceberg to a height of more than one hundred feet. What a conclusion! To be swallowed up in a polar tempest! to be destroyed in a fight with savages, to be crushed in the ice, such are the dangers to which any ship engaged in the polar seas is exposed. But to think that the Halbrane had been lifted by a floating mountain, just as that mountain was turning over, was stranded, and almost at its summit, no, such a thing seemed quite impossible. I did not know whether we could succeed in letting down the schooner from this height, with the means we had at our disposal but I did know that Captain Len Guy, the mate, and the older members of the crew, when they had recovered from their first fright, would not give up in despair, no matter how terrible the situation might be. Of that I had no doubt whatsoever. They would all look to the general safety. As for the measures to be taken, no one yet knew anything. A foggy veil, a sort of greyish mist, still hung over the iceberg. Nothing could be seen of its enormous mass, except the narrow craggy cleft in which the schooner was wedged, nor even what place it occupied in the middle of the ice-fleet, drifting towards the southeast. Common prudence demanded that we should quit the halbrane, which might slide down at a sharp shake of the iceberg. Were we even certain that the latter had regained its position on the surface of the sea? Was her stability secure? Should we not be on the lookout for a fresh upheaval? and if the schooner were to fall into the abyss, which of us could extricate himself safe and sound from such a fall, and then from the final plunge into the depths of the ocean? In a few minutes the crew had abandoned the halbrane, 
each man sought for refuge on the ice-slopes, awaiting the time when the iceberg should be freed from mist. The oblique rays from the sun did not succeed in piercing it, and the red disk could hardly be perceived through the opaque mass. However, we could not distinguish each other at about twelve feet apart. As for the Halbrane, she looked like a confused, blackish mass, standing out sharply against the whiteness of the ice. We had now to ascertain whether any of those who were on the deck at the time of the catastrophe had been thrown over the bulwarks and precipitated into the sea. By Captain Lenguy's orders, all the sailors then present joined the group in which I stood with the mate, the boatswain, Hardy, and Martin Holt. So far, this catastrophe had cost us five men. These were the first since our departure from Kerguelen, but were they to be the last? There was no doubt that these unfortunate fellows had perished, because we called to them in vain, and in vain we sought for them. When the fog abated along the sides of the iceberg, at every place where they might have been able to catch on to a projection. When the disappearance of the five men had been ascertained, we fell into despair. Then we felt more keenly than before the dangers which threatened every expedition to the Antarctic zone. "'What about Hearn?' said a voice. Martin Holt pronounced the name at a moment when there was general silence. Had the sailing-master been crushed to death in the narrow part of the hold, where he was shut up. West rushed towards the schooner, hoisted himself on board by the means of a rope hanging over the bows, and gained the hatch, which gives access to that part of the hold. We waited, silent and motionless, to learn of the fate of Hearn, although the evil spirit of the crew was but little worthy of our pity. And yet, how many of us were then thinking that if we had heeded his advice, and if the schooner had taken the northern course, a whole crew would have not been reduced to take refuge on a drifting ice-mountain. I scarcely dared to calculate my own share of the vast responsibility, I who had so vehemently insisted on the prolongation of the voyage. At length the mate reappeared on deck, and Hearn followed him. By miracle neither the bulkheads nor the ribs nor the planking had yielded at the place where the sealing-master was confined. Hearn rejoined his comrades without opening his lips, and we had no further trouble about him. Towards six o'clock in the morning the fog cleared off, owing to a marked fall in the temperature. We had no longer to do with completely frozen vapour, but had to deal with the phenomenon called frost-rime, which often occurs in these high latitudes. Captain Len Guy recognised it by the quantity of prismatic threads, the point following the wind, which roughened the light ice-crust, deposited on the sides of the iceberg. Navigators know better than to confound this frost-rime with the hoar-frost of the temperate zones, which only freezes when it has been deposited on the surface of the soil. We were now enabled to estimate the size of the solid mass on which we are clustered like flies on a sugar-loaf, and the schooner, seen from below, looked no bigger than the yawl of a trading-vessel. The iceberg of between three and four hundred fathoms in circumference measured from one hundred and thirty to one hundred and forty feet high. According to all calculations, therefore, its depth would be four or five times greater, and it would consequently weigh millions of tons. This is what had happened. The iceberg, having been melted away at its base by contact with warmer waters, had risen little by little. Its centre of gravity had become displaced and its equilibrium could only be re-established by a sudden capsize, which had lifted up the part that had been underneath, above the sea-level. The halbrane caught in this movement was hoisted as by an enormous lever. Numbers of icebergs capsized thus on the polar seas, and form one of the greatest dangers to which approaching vessels are exposed. Our schooner was caught in a hollow on the west side of the iceberg. She listed to starboard, with her stern raised and her bow lowered. We could not help thinking that the slightest shake would cause her to slide along the slope of the iceberg into the sea. The collision had been so violent as to stave in some of the planks of her hull. After the first collision, the galley situated before the foremast had broken its fastenings. The door between Captain Len Guy's and the mate's cabins was torn away from the hinges. The top-mast and the top-gallant-mast 
had come down after the back stays parted, and fresh fractures could plainly be seen as high as the cap of the masthead. Fragments of all kinds, yards, spars, a part of the sails, breakers, cases, hen-coops were probably floating at the foot of the mast and drifting with it. The most alarming part of our situation was the fact that of the two boats belonging to the Halbrane, one had been stove in when we grounded, and the other, the larger of the two, was still hanging on by its tackles to the starboard davits. Before anything else was done, this boat had to be put in a safe place, because it might prove our only means of escape. As a result of the first examination, we found that the lower masts had remained in their places, and might be of use if ever we succeeded in releasing the schooner. But how were we to release her from her bed in the ice, and restore her to her natural element? When I found myself with Captain Len Guy, the mate and the boatswain, I questioned them on this subject. "'I agree with you,' replied West, "'that the operation involves great risks, but since it is indispensable, we will accomplish it. I think it will be necessary to dig out a sort of slide down to the base of the iceberg.' "'And without the delay of a single day,' added Captain Len Guy. "'Do you hear, Boson? said Jem West. "'Work begins to-day.' "'I hear, and every one will set himself to the task,' replied Hurley-Gurley. "'If you allow me, I shall just make one observation, Captain. "'What is it? "'Before beginning the work, let us examine the hull, "'and see what the damage is, and whether it can be repaired. "'For what use would it be to launch a ship stripped of her planks?' which would go to the bottom at once. We complied with the boatswain's just demand. The fog having cleared off, a bright sun then illuminated the eastern side of the iceberg, whence the sea was visible round a large part of the horizon. Here the sides of the iceberg showed rugged projections, ledges, shoulders, and even flat instead of smooth surfaces, giving no foothold. However caution would be necessary, in order to avoid the falling of those unbalanced blocks, which a single shock might set loose. And, as a matter of fact, during the morning several of these blocks did roll into the sea, with a frightful noise, just like an avalanche. On the whole, the iceberg seemed to be very steady on its new base, so long as the centre of gravity was below the level of the waterline. There was no fear of a fresh capsize. I had not yet had an opportunity of speaking to Dirk Peters since the catastrophe. As he had answered to his name, I knew he was not numbered among the victims. At this moment I perceived him standing on a narrow projection, needless to specify the direction in which his eyes were turned. Captain Len Kai, the mate, the boatswain, Hardy, and Martin Holt, whom I accompanied, went up again towards the schooner, in order to make a minute investigation of the hull. On the starboard side, the operation would be easy enough, because the halbrane had listed to the opposite side. On the port side, we would have to slide along to the keel, as well as we could by scooping out the ice, in order to ensure the inspection of every part of the planking. After an examination which lasted two hours, it was discovered that the damage was of little importance, and could be repaired in short time. Two or three planks were only wrenched away by the collision, in the inside the skin was intact, the ribs not having given way. Our vessel, constructed for the polar seas, had resisted where many others less solidly built would have been dashed to pieces. The rudder had indeed been unshipped, but that could be easily set right. Having finished our inspection inside and outside, we agreed that the damage was less considerable than we feared, and on that subject we became reassured, reassured, Yes, if we could only succeed in getting the schooner afloat again. End of chapter 19, part 2「An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne, part 1 Unmerciful Disaster In the morning after breakfast it was decided that the men should begin to dig a sloping bed which would allow the halbrane to slide to the foot of the iceberg. Would that heaven might grant success to the operation! For who could contemplate without terror having to brave the severity of the austral winter, and to pass six months under such conditions as ours on a vast iceberg, dragged none could tell whither? 
Once the winter had set in, none of us could have escaped from that most terrible of fates, dying of cold. At this moment Dirk Peters, who was observing the horizon from south to east at about one hundred paces off, cried in a rough voice, "'Lying to!' "'Lying to?' What could the half-breed mean by that, except that the floating mass had suddenly ceased to drift? As for the cause of this stoppage, it was neither the moment to investigate it, nor to ask ourselves what the consequences were likely to be. "'It is true, however,' cried the boatswain. "'The iceberg is not stirring, and perhaps has not stirred since it capsized.' "'How?' said I. "'It no longer changes its place.' "'No,' replied the mate, "'and the proof is that the others, drifting on, are leaving it behind.' And in fact, whilst five or six icebergs were descending towards the south, ours was as motionless as though it had been stranded on a shoal. The simplest explanation was that the new base had encountered ground at the bottom of the sea, to which it now adhered, and would continue to adhere, unless the submerged part rose in the water so as to cause a second capsize.' This complicated matters seriously, because of the dangers of positive immobility were such that the chances of drifting were preferable. At least in the latter case there was some hope of coming across a continent or an island, or even, if the currents did not change, of crossing the boundaries of the austral region. Here we were, then, after three months of this terrible voyage. Was there now any question of trying to save William Guy, his comrades on the Jane, and Arthur Pym? was it not for our own safety that any means at our disposal should be employed and could it be wondered at were the sailors of the halbrane to rebel were they to listen to hearn's suggestion and make their officers or myself especially responsible for the disasters of this expedition moreover was it likely to take place since notwithstanding their losses the followers of the sealing-master were still a majority of the ship's company the question I could clearly see was occupying the thoughts of Captain Len Guy and West. Again, although the recruits from the Falklands formed only a total of fourteen men, as against the twelve of the old crew, was it not to be feared that some of the latter would take Hearn's side? What if Hearn's people, urged by despair, were already thinking of seizing the only boat we now possessed, setting off towards the north, and leaving us on this iceberg? It was then of great importance that our boat should be put in safety and closely watched. A marked change had taken place in Captain Len Guy since the recent occurrences. He seemed to be transformed upon finding himself face to face with the dangers which menaced us. Up to that time he had been solely occupied in searching for his fellow countrymen. He had handed over the command of the schooner to West, and he could not have given it to anyone more zealous and more capable. But from this date he resumed his position as master of the ship, and used it with the energy required by the circumstances. In a word, he again became sole master on board, after God. At his command the crew were drawn up around him, on a flat spot, a little to the left of the halbrane. In that place the following were assembled. On the senior's side, Martin Holt and Hardy, Rogers, Francis, Gratien, Berry, Stern, the cook, Endicott, and I may add Dirk Peters, on the side of the newcomers, Hearn and the thirteen other Falkland sailors. The latter composed a distinct group. The sealing master was their spokesman, and exercised a baneful influence over them. Captain Len Guy cast a stern glance upon the men, and said in a sharp tone, "'Sailors of the Halbrane, I must first speak to you of our lost companions. Five of us have just perished in this catastrophe.' "'We are waiting to perish in our turn in these seas, where we have been dragged in spite of—' "'Be silent, Hearn,' cried West, pale with anger. "'Or if not—' "'Hearn has said what he had to say,' Captain Len Guy continued coldly. "'Now it is said, and I advise him not to interrupt me a second time.' The sealing-master might possibly have ventured on an answer, for he felt that he was backed by the majority of the crew. But Martin Holt held him back, and he was silent.' Captain Len Guy then took off his hat and pronounced the following words with an emotion that affected us to the bottom of our hearts. We must pray for those who have died in this dangerous voyage, which was undertaken in the name of humanity. May God be pleased to take into consideration the fact that they devoted their lives to their fellow creatures. 
and may he not be insensible to our prayers. Kneel down, sailors of the Halbrane. They all knelt down on the icy surface, and the murmurs of prayers ascended towards heaven. We waited for Captain Len Guy to rise before we did so. Now, he resumed, after those who are dead come those who have survived. To them I say that they must obey me, whatever my orders may be, and even in our present situation I shall not tolerate any hesitation or opposition. The responsibility for the general safety is mine, and I will not yield any of it to anyone. I am master here, as on board. On board when there is no longer a ship, muttered the sealing master. You are mistaken, Hearn. The vessel is there, and we will put it back into the sea. Besides, if we had only a boat, I am the captain of it. Let him beware who forgets this. That day Captain Len Guy, having taken the height of the sun by the sextant, and fixed the hour by the chronometer, both of these instruments had escaped destruction in the collision, obtained the following position of his ship. South latitude, 88 degrees, 55 minutes. West longitude, 39 degrees, 12 minutes. The Halbrane was only at 1 degree, 5 minutes, about 65 miles from the South Pole. All hands to work, was the captain's order that afternoon, and everyone obeyed it with a will. There was not a moment to lose, as the question of time was more important than any other. So far as provisions were concerned, there was enough in the schooner for eighteen months on full rations, so we were not threatened with hunger, nor with thirst either, notwithstanding that, owing to water-casks having been burst in the collision, their contents had escaped through their staves. Luckily the barrels of gin, whisky, beer, and wine, being placed in the least exposed part of the hold, were nearly all intact. Under this head we had experienced no loss, and the iceberg would supply us with good drinking water. It is a well-known fact that ice, whether formed from fresh or salt water, contains no salt. Owing to the chloride of sodium being eliminated in the change from liquid to the solid state, the origin of the ice, therefore, is a matter of no importance. However, those blocks which are easily distinguished by their green color and their perfect transparency are preferable. They are solidified rain, and therefore much more suitable for drinking water. Without doubt our captain would have recognized any blocks of this description, but none were to be found on the glacier, owing to its being that part of the berg which was originally submerged and came to the top after the fall. The captain and West decided first to lighten the vessel, by conveying everything on board to land. The masts were to be cleared of rigging, taking out, and placed on the plateau. It was necessary to lighten the vessel as much as possible, even to clear out the ballast, owing to the difficult and dangerous operation of launching. It would be better to put off our departure for some days if this operation could be performed under more favorable circumstances. The loading might afterwards be accomplished without much difficulty. Besides this, another reason, by no means less serious, presented itself to us. It would have been an act of unpardonable rashness to leave the provisions in the storeroom of the Halbrane, her situation on the side of the iceberg being very precarious. One shake would suffice to detach the ship, and with her would have disappeared the supplies on which our lives depended. On this account we passed the day in removing casks of half-salted meat, dried vegetables, flour, biscuits, tea, coffee, barrels of gin, whiskey, wine and beer from the hold and storeroom, and placing them safely in the hammocks near the Halbrane. We also had to ensure our landing against any possible accident, and, I must add, against any plot on the part of Hearn and others to seize the boat in order to return to the ice barrier. We placed the long boat in a cavity which would be easy to watch about thirty feet to the left of the schooner, along with its oars, rudder, compass, anchor, masts, and sail. By day there was nothing to fear, and at night, or rather during the hours of sleep, the bosun and one of the superiors would keep guard near the cavity, and we might rest assured that no evil could befall. The 19th, 20th, and 21st of January were passed in working extra hard in the unshipping of the cargo and the dismantling of the halbrane. We slung the lower mast by means of yards forming props. 
Later on, West would see to replacing the main and the mizzen masts, in any case. We could do without them until we had reached the Falklands or some other winter port. Needless to say, we had set up a camp on the plateau of which I have spoken, not far from the Halbrane, sufficient shelter against the inclemency of weather, not unfrequent at this time of the year, was to be found under tents, constructed of sails, placed on spars, and fastened down by pegs. The glass remained set fair. The wind was nor'east, the temperature having risen to 46 degrees, 2.78 degrees Celsius. Endicott's kitchen was fitted up at the end of the plain, near a steep projection by which we could climb to the very top of the berg. It is only fair to state that during these three days of hard work no fault was to be found with Hearn. The sealing-master knew he was being closely watched, and he was well aware that Captain Len Guy would not spare him if he tried to get up insubordination amongst his comrades. It was a pity that his bad instincts had induced him to play such a part, for his strength, skill, and cleverness made him a very valuable man, and he had never proved more useful than under these circumstances. Was he changed for the better? Did he understand that the general good feeling was necessary for the safety of all? I know not, but I had no confidence in him, neither had Hurlygurly. I need not dwell on the ardour with which the half-breed did the rough work, always first to begin and the last to leave off, doing as much as four men, and scarcely sleeping, only resting during meals, which he took apart from the others. He had hardly spoken to me at all since the schooner had met with this terrible accident. What indeed could he say to me? Did I not know as well as he that it would be necessary to renounce every hope of pursuing our intended voyage? Now and again I noticed Martin Holt and the half-breed near each other while some difficult piece of work was in progress. Our sailing-master did not miss a chance of getting near Dirk Peters, who always tried his best to escape from him, for reasons well known to me. And whenever I thought of the secret of the fate of the so-called Parker, Martin Holt's brother, which had been entrusted to me, that dreadful scene of the Grampus filled me with horror. I was certain that if this secret were made known, the half-breed would become an object of terror. He would no longer be looked upon as the rescuer of the sailing-master, and the latter, learning that his brother, luckily Dirk Peters and myself were the only two acquainted with the fact. While the hull-brain was being unloaded, Captain Len Guy and the mate were considering how the vessel might be launched. They had to allow for a drop of one hundred feet between the cavity in which the ship lay and the sea this to be effected by means of an inclined bed hollowed in an oblique line along the west side of the iceberg, and to measure two or three hundred perches in length. So, while the first lot of men, commanded by the boatswain, was unloading the schooner, a second batch, under west's orders, began to cut the trench between the blocks which covered the side of the floating mountain. Floating, I know not why I use this expression, for the iceberg no longer floated but remained as motionless as an island. There was nothing to indicate that it would ever move again. Other icebergs drifted along and passed us, going southeast, whilst ours, to use Dirk Peters' expression, was lying too. Would its base be sufficiently undermined to allow it to detach itself? Perhaps some heavy mass of ice might strike it and set it free by the shock. No one could predict such an event and we had only the halbrane to lie upon for getting us out of these regions. We were engaged in these various tasks until the 24th of January. The atmosphere was clear, the temperature was even, and the thermometer had indeed gone up two or three degrees above freezing point. The number of icebergs coming from the northwest was therefore increasing. There were now a hundred of them, and a collision with any of these might have a most disastrous result. Hardy, the conqueror, hastened first of all to mend the hull. Pegs had to be changed, bits of planking to be replaced, seams to be caulked. We had everything that was necessary for this work, and we might rest assured that it would be performed in the best possible manner. In the midst of the silence of these solitudes, the noise of the hammers striking the nails into the side, and the sound of the mallet stuffing tow into the seams, had a startling effect. Seagulls, wild ducks, albatross, and petrels flew in a circle round the top of the berg, 
with a shrill screaming and made a terrible uproar. When I found myself with West and the captain, our conversation naturally turned on our situation and how to get out of it, and upon our chances of pulling through. The mate had good hopes that if no accident occurred, the launching would be successfully accomplished. The captain was more reserved on the subject, but at the thought that he would have to renounce all hope of finding the survivors of the Jane, his heart was ready to break. When the Halbrane should be ready again for the sea, and West should inquire what course he was to steer, would Captain Lenguy dare to reply to the south? No, for he would not be followed either by the new hands or by the greater portion of the old members of the crew. To continue our search in this direction, to go beyond the pole, without being certain of reaching the Indian Ocean instead of the Atlantic, would have been rashness, of which no navigator would be guilty. If a continent bound the sea on this side, the schooner would run the danger of being crushed by the mass of ice before it could escape the southern winter. Under such circumstances, to attempt to persuade Captain Langai to pursue the voyage would only be to court a certain refusal. It could not even be proposed, now that necessity obliged us to return northwards, and not to delay a single day in this portion of the Antarctic regions. At any rate, though I resolved not again to speak of the matter to the captain, I lost no opportunity of sounding the boatswain. Often when he had finished his work, Hurly-gurly would come and join me, we would chat, and we would compare our recollections of travel. End of chapter 20, part 1「An Antarctic Mystery » by Jules Verne Chapter 20, Part 2 Unmerciful Disaster One day, as we were seated on the summit of the iceberg, gazing fixedly on the deceptive horizon, he exclaimed, "'Who could ever have imagined, Mr. Jorling, when the Halbrane left Kerguelen, that six and a half months afterwards, she would be stuck on the side of an ice-mountain?' "'A fact much more to be regretted,' I replied, because only for that accident we should have attained our object, and we should have begun our return journey. I didn't mean to contradict, replied the boatswain, but you say we should have attained our object. Do you mean by that, that we should have found our countrymen? Perhaps. I can scarcely believe such would have been the case, Mr. Jorling, although this was the principal and perhaps even the only object of our navigation in the polar seas. The only one, yes, at the start, I insinuated, but since the half-breed's revelations about Arthur Pym. Ah, uh, you are always harking back on that subject, like brave Dirk Peters. Always, hurly-gurly, and only that a deplorable and unforeseen accident made us run aground. I leave you to your delusions, Mr. Jorling, since you believe you have run aground. Why, is this not the case? In any case, it is a wonderful running aground, replied the boatswain. Instead of a good solid bottom, we have run aground in the air. Then I am right, hurly-gurly, in saying that it is an unfortunate adventure. Unfortunate, truly, but in my opinion we should take warning by it. What warning? That it is not permitted for us to venture so far in these latitudes, and I believe that the Creator forbids his creatures to climb to the summit of the poles. Notwithstanding that, the summit of one pole is only sixty miles away from us now. Granted, Mr. Jorling, but these sixty miles are equal to thousands when we have no means of making them. And if the launch of the schooner is not successful, here we are condemned to winter quarters, which the polar bears themselves would hardly relish. I replied only by a shake of my head, which Hurly-Gurly could not fail to understand. Do you know, Mr. Jorling, of what I think oftenest? What do you think of, Bosun? Of the Kerguelens, whither we are certainly not travelling. Truly in a bad season it was cold enough there. There is not much difference between this archipelago and the islands situated on the edge of the Antarctic Sea. But there one is not far from the Cape, and if we want to warm our shins, no iceberg bars the way. Whereas here it is the devil to weigh anchor and one never knows if one shall find a clear course. I repeat it, Bosun, if this last accident had not occurred, everything would have been over by this time, one way or another. We should still have had more than six weeks to get out of these southern seas, 
It is seldom that a ship is so roughly treated as ours has been, and I consider it real bad luck, after our having profited by such fortunate circumstances. "'These circumstances are all over, Mr. Jorling,' exclaimed Hurley-Gurley. "'And I fear indeed—' "'What, you also, Bosun? You, whom I believe to be so confident?' confidence mr jorling wears out like the ends of one's trousers what would you have me do when i compare my lot to old atkins installed in his cosy inn when i think of the green cormorant of the big parlours downstairs with the little tables round which friends sip whisky and gin discussing the news of the day while the stove makes more noise than the weathercock on the roof oh then the comparison is not in our favour and in my opinion Mr. Atkins enjoys life better than I do. You shall see them all again, Bosun. Atkins, the green cormorant, and the Kerguelen. For God's sake, do not let yourself grow downhearted. And if you, a sensible and courageous man, despair already. Oh, if I were the only one, it would not be half so bad as it is. The whole crew does not despair, surely. Yes and no, replied Hurley-Gurley, for I know some who are not at all satisfied. Has Hearn begun his mischief again? Is he exciting his companion? Not openly, at least, Mr. Jorling, and since I have kept him under my eye, I have neither seen nor heard anything. Besides, he knows what awaits him if he budges. I believe I am not mistaken. The sly dog has changed his tactics. But what does not astonish me in him astonishes me in Martin Holt. What do you mean, Bosun? That they seem to be on good terms with each other. See how Hearn seeks out Martin Holt, talks to him frequently, and Holt does not treat his overtures unfavorably. Martin Holt is not one of those who would listen to Hearn's advice, or follow it if he tried to provoke rebellion amongst the crew. No doubt, Mr. Jorling. However, I don't fancy seeing them so much together. Hearn is a dangerous and unscrupulous individual, and most likely Martin Holt does not distrust him sufficiently. He is wrong, Bosun. And, wait a moment, do you know what they were talking about the other day when I overheard a few scraps of their conversation? I could not possibly guess until you tell me, Hurley-Gurley. Well, while they were conversing on the bridge of the Halbrane, I heard them talking about Dirk Peters, and Hearn was saying, You must not owe a grudge to the half-breed Master Holt, because he refused to respond to your advances and accept your thanks. If he be only a sort of brute, he possesses plenty of courage and has shown it in getting you out of a bad corner at the risk of his life and besides do not forget that he formed part of the crew of the grampus and your brother ned if i don't mistake he said that bosun he spoke of the grampus i exclaimed yes of the grampus and of ned holt precisely mr jorling and what answer did martin holt make he replied i don't even know under what circumstances my unfortunate brother perished was it during a revolt on board brave man that he was he would not betray his captain and perhaps he was massacred did hearn dwell on this bosun yes but he added it is very sad for you master holt the captain of the grampus according to what i have been told was abandoned being placed in a small boat with one or two of his men and who knows if your brother was not along with them and what next then mr jorling he added did it never occur to you to ask Dirk Peters to enlighten you on the subject? Yes, once, replied Martin Holt. I questioned the half-breed about it, and never did I see a man so overcome. He replied in so low a voice that I could scarcely understand him. I know not, I know not. And he ran away with his face buried in his hands. Was that all you heard of the conversation, Bosun? That was all, Mr. Jorling, and I thought it so strange that I wish to inform you of it. And what conclusion did you draw from it? Nothing, except that I look upon the sealing master as a scoundrel of deepest dye, perfectly capable of working in secret for some evil purpose with which he would like to associate Martin Holt. What did Hearn's new attitude mean? Why did he strive to gain Martin Holt, one of the best of the crew, as an ally? Why did he recall the scenes of the Grampus? Did her know more of this matter of Dirk Peters and Ned Holt than the others? This secret which the half-breed and I believed ourselves to be the sole possessors? The doubt caused me serious uneasiness. 
However, I took care not to say anything of it to Dirk Peters. If he had for a moment suspected that Hearn spoke of what happened on board the Grampus, if he had heard that the rascal, as Hurley-Gurley called him, and not without reason, constantly talked to Martin Holt about his brother, I really do not know what would have happened. In short, whatever the intentions of Hearn might be, it was dreadful to think that our sailing-master, on whose fidelity Captain Len Guy ought to be able to count, was in conspiracy with him. The sealing-master must have a strong motive for acting in this way. What it was I could not imagine. Although the crew seemed to have abandoned every thought of mutiny, a strict watch was kept, especially on Hearn. Besides, the situation must soon change, at least so far as the schooner was concerned. Two days afterwards the work was finished. The caulking operations were completed, and also the slide for lowering the vessel to the base of our floating mountain. Just now the upper portion of the ice had been slightly softened, so that this last work did not entail much labor for pickaxe or spade. The course ran obliquely round the west side of the berg, so that the incline should not be too great at any point. With cables properly fixed, the launch, it seemed, might be effected without any mishap. I rather feared lest the melting of the ice should make the gliding less smooth at the lower part of the berg. Needless to say, the cargo, masting, anchors, chains, etc., had not been put on board. The hull was quite heavy enough, and not easily moved, so it was necessary to lighten it as much as possible. When the schooner was again in its element, the loading could be effected in a few days. On the afternoon of the 28th, the finishing touches were given. It was necessary to put supports for the sides of the slide in some places where the ice had melted quickly. Then everyone was allowed to rest from four o'clock p.m. The captain had double rations served out to all hands, and while they merited this extra supply of spirits, they had indeed worked hard during the week. I repeated that every sign of mutiny had disappeared. The crew thought of nothing except this great operation of the launching. The halbrane in the sea would mean departure. It would also mean return. For Dirk Peters and me it would be the definite abandonment of Arthur Pym. That night the temperature was at the highest we had so far experienced. The thermometer registered 53 degrees, 11.67 degrees Celsius, above zero. So, although the sun was nearing the horizon, the ice was melting, and thousands of small streams flowed in every direction. The early birds woke at four o'clock, and I was one of their number. I had scarcely slept, and I fancy that Dirk Peters did not sleep much, haunted as he was by the sad thought of having to turn back. The launch was to take place at ten o'clock. Taking every possible difficulty into account, and allowing for the minutest precautions, the captain hoped that it would be completed before the close of the day. Everyone believed that by evening the schooner would be at the foot of the berg. Of course, we all had to lend a hand to this difficult task. To each man a special duty was assigned. Some were employed to facilitate the sliding with wooden rollers if necessary, others to moderate the speed of the hull in case it became too great by means of hawsers and cables. We breakfasted at nine o'clock in the tents. Our sailors were perfectly confident and could not refrain from drinking success to the event and although this was a little premature, we added our hurrahs to theirs. Success seemed very nearly assured, as the captain and the mate had worked out the matter so carefully and skillfully. At last we were about to leave our encampment and take up our stations. Some of the sailors were there already, when cries of amazement and fear were raised. What a frightful scene, and short as it may have been, what an impression of terror it left on our minds! One of the enormous blocks, which formed the bank of the mud-bed, where the halbrane lie, having become loose owing to the melting of its base, had slipped and was bounding over the others down the incline. In another moment the schooner, being no longer retained in position, was swinging on this declivity. On board, on deck, in front, there were two sailors, Rogers and Gretchen. In vain did the unfortunate men try to jump over the bulwarks they had not time, and they were dragged away in this dreadful fall. Yes, I saw it. I saw the schooner topple over, slide down, first on its right side,
crush one of the men who delayed too long about jumping to one side, then bound from block to block, and finally fling itself into space. In another moment the halbrane staved in, broken up, with gaping planks and shattered ribs, had sunk, causing a tremendous jet of water to spout up at the foot of the iceberg. Horrified! Yes, indeed, we were horrified when the schooner, carried off as though by an avalanche, had disappeared in the abyss. Not a particle of our halbrane remained, not even a wreck. A minute ago she was one hundred feet in the air. Now she was five hundred in the depths of the sea. Yes, we were so stupefied that we were unable to think of the dangers to come. Our amazement was that of people who cannot believe their eyes. Prostration succeeded as a natural consequence. There was not a word spoken. We stood motionless, with our feet rooted to the icy soil. No words could express the horror of our situation. As for West, when the schooner had disappeared in the abyss, I saw big tears fall from his eyes. The halbrane that he loved so much was now an unknown quantity. Yes, our stout-hearted mate wept. Three of our men had perished, and in what frightful fashion! I had seen Rogers and Gretchen, two of our most faithful sailors, stretch out their hands in despair as they were knocked about by the rebounding of the schooner, and finally sink with her. The other man from the Falklands, an American, was crushed in its rush. His shapeless form lay in a pool of blood. Three new victims within the last ten days had to be inscribed on the register of those who died during this fatal voyage. Ah, fortune had favoured us up to the hour when the halbrane was snatched from her own element. But her hand was now against us. And was not this last the worst blow? Must it not prove the stroke of death? The silence was broken by a tumult of despairing voices, whose despair was justified indeed by this irreparable misfortune. And I am sure that more than one thought it would have been better to have been on the halbrane as she rebounded off the side of the iceberg. Everything would have been over then, as it was all over with Rogers and Gratchen. This foolish expedition would thus have come to a conclusion worthy of such rashness and imprudence. At last, the instinct of self-preservation triumphed, and, except Hearn, who stood some distance off, and affected silence, all the men shouted, To the boat! To the boat! These unfortunate fellows were out of their mind. Terror led them astray. They rushed towards the crag where our one boat, which could not hold them all, had been sheltered during the unloading of the schooner. Captain Len Guy and Jem West rushed after them. I joined them immediately, followed by the boatswain. We were armed and resolved to make use of our arms. We had to prevent these furious men from seizing the boat, which did not belong to a few, but to all. "'Hallo, sailors!' cried the captain. "'Hallo!' repeated West. "'Stop there, or we fire on the first who goes a step further.' Both threatened the men with their pistols. The boatswain pointed his gun at them. I held my rifle, ready to fire. It was in vain. The frenzied men heard nothing, would not hear anything, and one of them fell, struck by the mate's bullet, just as he was crossing the last block. He was unable to catch on to the bank with his hands, and slipping on the frozen slope, he disappeared in the abyss. Was this the beginning of a massacre? Would others let themselves be killed at this place? Would the old hands side with the newcomers? At that moment I remarked that Hardy, Martin Holt, Francis Burry, and Stern hesitated about coming over to our side, while Hearn, still standing motionless at some distance, gave no encouragement to the rebels. However, we could not allow them to become masters of the boat, to bring it down, to embark ten or twelve men, and to abandon us to our certain fate on this iceberg. They had almost reached the boat, heedless of danger and deaf to threats, when a second report was heard, and one of the sailors fell, by a bullet from the boatswain's gun. One American and one Fugian, less to be numbered amongst the sealing-master's partisans. Then, in front of the boat, a man appeared. It was Dirk Peters, who had climbed the opposite slope. 
the half-breed put one of his enormous hands on the stern, and with the other made a sign to the furious men to clear off. Dirk Peters being there, we no longer needed our arms, as he alone would suffice to protect the boat. And indeed, as five or six of the sailors were advancing, he went up to them, caught hold of the nearest by the belt, lifted him up and sent him flying ten paces off. The wretched man, not being able to catch hold of anything, would have rebounded into the sea had not Hearn seized him. Owing to the half-breed's intervention, the revolt was instantly quelled. Besides, we were coming up to the boat, and with us those of our men whose hesitation had not lasted long. No matter, the others were still thirteen to our ten. Captain Len Guy made his appearance. Anger shone in his eyes, and with him was West, quite unmoved. Words failed the captain for some moments, but his look said what his tongue could not utter. At length, in a terrible voice, he said, I ought to treat you as evil doers. However, I will only consider you as madmen. The boat belongs to everybody. It is now our only means of salvation, and you wanted to steal it, to steal it like cowards. Listen attentively to what I say for the last time. This boat, belonging to the Halbrane, is now the Halbrane herself. I am captain of it, and let him who disobey me beware. With these last words, Captain Len Guy looked at Hearn, for whom this warning was expressly meant. The sealing-master had not appeared in the last scene, not openly at least, but nobody doubted that he had urged his comrades to make off with the boat, and that he had every intention of doing the same again. "'Now to the camp,' said the captain, "'and you, Dirk Peters, remain here.' The half-breed's only reply was to nod his big head and betake himself to his post. The crew returned to the camp without the least hesitation. Some lay down in their sleeping places, others wandered about. Hearn neither tried to join them nor go near Martin Holt. Now that the sailors were reduced to idleness, there was nothing to do except to ponder on our critical situation, and invent some means of getting out of it. The captain, the mate, and the boatswain formed a council, and I took part in their deliberations. Captain Len began by saying, we have protected our boat, and we shall continue to protect it. Until death, declared West. Who knows, said I, whether we shall not soon be forced to embark. In that case, replied the captain, as all cannot fit into it, it will be necessary to make a selection. Lots shall determine which of us are to go, and I shall not ask to be treated differently from the others. We have not come to that, luckily replied the boatswain. The iceberg is solid, and there is no fear of its melting before winter. No, assented West, that is not to be feared. What it behooves us to do is, while watching the boat, to keep an eye on the provisions. We are lucky, added Hurley-Gurley, to have put our cargo in safety. Poor dear Halbrane, she will remain in these seas like the Jane, her elder sister. Yes, without doubt, and I thought so for many reasons, the one destroyed by the savage of Salal, the other by one of these catastrophes, that no human power can prevent. "'You are right,' replied the captain, "'and we must prevent our men from plundering. We are sure of enough provisions for one year, without counting what we may get by fishing.' "'And it is so much more than necessary, captain, to keep a close watch, because I have seen some hovering about the spirit casks.' "'I will see to that,' replied West. But, I then asked, had we not better prepare ourselves for the fact that we may be compelled to winter on this iceberg? May heaven avert such a terrible probability, replied the captain. After all, if it were necessary, we could get through it, Mr. Jorling, said the boatswain. We could hollow out sheltering places in the ice so as to be able to bear the extreme cold of the pole, and so long as we had sufficient to appease our hunger... At this moment the horrid recollection of the Grampus came to my mind. The scenes in which Dirk Peters had killed Ned Holt, the brother of our sailing-master. Should we ever be in such extremity? 
Would it not, before we proceed to set up winter quarters for seven or eight months, be better to leave the iceberg altogether, if such a thing were possible? I called the attention of Captain Len Guy and West to this point. This was a difficult question to answer, and a long silence preceded the reply. At last the captain said, Yes, that would be the best resolution to come to, and if our boat could hold us all, with the provisions necessary for a voyage that might last three or four weeks, I would not hesitate to put to sea now and return towards the north. But I made them observe that we should be obliged to direct our course contrary to wind and current. Our schooner herself could hardly have succeeded in doing this, whilst to continue towards the south. Towards the south? repeated the captain, who looked at me as though he sought to read my thoughts. Why not? I answered. If the iceberg had not been stopped in its passage, perhaps it would have drifted to some land in that direction, and might not our boat accomplish what it would have done? The captain, shaking his head, answered nothing. West was also silent. Eh, our iceberg will end by raising its anchor, replied Hurlygurly. It does not hold to the bottom, like the Falklands or the Kerguelens. So the safest course is to wait, as the boat cannot carry twenty-three, the number of our party. I dwelt upon the fact that it was not necessary for all twenty-three to embark. It would be sufficient, I said, for five or six of us to reconnoitre further south for twelve or fifteen miles. South, repeated Captain Len Guy. Undoubtedly, Captain, I added, you probably know what the geographers frankly admit, that the Antarctic regions are formed by a capped continent. Geographers know nothing and can know nothing about it, replied West coldly. It is a pity, said I, that as we are so near we should not attempt to solve this question of a polar continent. I thought it was better not to insist just at present. End of chapter 20, part 2「Thank you again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, D.B. Spitzer. Remember, you can help out the show by going to pgttcm.com. Follow the show notes and follow the show on social media. Uh, find us anywhere you catch your pods at your podcatchers. And, yeah, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Just look for us there and look for us wherever you look for podcasts thank you again donate money help out the show buy a t-shirt send us a you know contact us get in touch all right thank you again and have a great day